Like many of you, perhaps, I grew up captivated by David Attenborough's incredible nature videos. And that amazement at God's creation has never left me. Cute cat videos? I couldn't care less about. But I love clips that show me things I didn't know were possible. Last week, I stumbled on a little deer mauling a hawk. I never imagined Bambi could get so angry. Then YouTube served up a video that proved something I'd assumed was a myth made up by preachers because it seems so ridiculous, but it turns out to be real. Monkeys are faster than humans, but people can catch them easily by cutting a hole in a coconut just big enough for a monkey paw, putting a large ripe fruit inside, and waiting. When a passing, passing monkey smells the fruit, he reaches his hand inside to take it, but then his hand's too big to pull back out. He's stuck. But rather than let go, the monkey will pull and pull, convinced he'll finally get that sweet treat with just a, a little more time and effort. His discernment is so clouded by his desire that even when he sees the hunter coming, the monkey still won't let go. His delusion about what's good for him literally costs his life. That trick would never work on an elephant because they could tear down an entire coconut tree with ease. But they have long memories, which can keep them stuck. While the elephant's still a baby, its keepers tie it to a pole that it doesn't yet have the power to pull free from. And it never forgets that rope is too strong to resist. So even a giant elephant can be held captive with a simple rope. The elephant could easily break free, but remains stuck because he's been trained to think he has no choice. And these examples remind me that we're a lot more like animals than we may want to admit. And we see this in today's scripture reading. But before we dive in, let's be honest about something. At first glance, these three stories make Jesus seem like a jerk. Over and over in Luke, we've seen Jesus inviting people to follow him. But when one guy actually accepts, Jesus seems to blow him off with some weird non sequitur about foxes and birds. I mean, what does that mean? It seems so rude. But it only gets worse when Jesus invites someone else to follow, and he agrees to as soon as his father's funeral ends. We can imagine Jesus replying with divine compassion, Oh, no, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear about your dad. How are you holding up? How's your family? Yeah, I, I'd be happy to uh, pray for him if you'd like, or, or bring over a casserole, maybe, maybe raise him from the dead. I mean, would that be helpful? But Jesus does the opposite, replying callously to this grieving man, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Obviously, somebody didn't have his coffee this morning because Jesus isn't being very nice. Despite that, a third guy decides to follow Jesus, but simply wants to say goodbye to his family, which apparently disqualifies him from being a disciple. I mean, so much for family values. I guess Jesus wanted him to ghost his family. I mean, you know, his face would be on milk cartons for decades, but they'd never know what happened. Pretty heartless. I mean, don't you think? That's what I used to think. I hated this passage because it seems so inconsistent with the far more generous Jesus we see in the rest of Luke's gospel. But then I finally stopped skipping past this passage and realized that it speaks directly 
to many of us. But I've been misreading it all along. I'll bet I'm not alone. In both our Sunday sermons and our daily devotions, we've been reading through the Gospel of Luke together since November. Up to this point in the story, Jesus has been showing us what life could be like if we followed him into a richer relationship with God. Our recent sermons have highlighted Jesus' compassion, power, and promises to transform us like fine wine, to answer prayer, to miraculously heal us, and to provide for our needs. No wonder Jesus has become a celebrity. Huge crowds are, are following him because Jesus is offering what everybody wants. Life. Joyful life. Meaningful life. Full life. Jesus even invites people who'd always been excluded. In recent chapters, we've seen Jesus welcome Samaritans, Roman centurions, peasants, little children, a woman with a chronic illness. So why did he suddenly change his tune with these three guys? Why did he suddenly become so mean? He didn't. As we'll see, he wants these three guys to follow him. And the text gives us no reason to think that they didn't. But because he wanted them to follow him, Jesus is helping them see the barriers that are holding them back. He's not rejecting them. He's releasing them from two traps that are keeping them stuck. And we need to read this passage because so many of us are stuck in these same two traps. We, we sense it. We feel like we're not experiencing all of Jesus's power or promises, but we don't know why. Jesus is revealing two possibilities. Many of us have gotten stuck in a monkey trap. We're reaching for something that looks so sweet and satisfying that we have to have it. Often it's a good thing that we're convinced will complete us somehow. Instead of bananas, the fruit we reach for includes things like degrees, prestige, money, material possessions. Maybe it's our appearance or others' approval. Maybe it's marriage or parenthood. Maybe it's finally owning a home or traveling endlessly in search of a culture or place you finally feel at home. Maybe it's just financial stability that's always eluded us. All of these can be good things, but when we make too much of them, they can consume our entire lives, but never deliver what we were hoping for. But we can't let go because the perpetual lie is that we're almost there. We've, we've almost got it. But when we ref refuse to loosen our grip, even on good things, they become traps that keep us from following Jesus into the truly full life that he wants for us. I remember when I first sensed that God was calling me into ministry. A missionary we were working with on a short-term missions trip during college called me out in front of the whole group, claiming that he believed God wanted me to be in ministry. And over the next few days, several of my team members affirmed his assessment. And, and something about it resonated in my soul. So you know what I did? Nothing. Because here was the thing. I grew up very comfortably. 
But the people I knew of in ministry were poor and kind of pathetic. I pitied them because obviously they just they weren't smart enough or something enough to actually be successful at something, so they settled for the consolation prize of church work. But that would never be me. I was going to work hard and make something of my life. I was going to be a lawyer like my father and several other family members. But I wasn't only seeking affluence. I was grasping for approval. I was pretty sure that my parents would feel like I wasted all the sacrifices they made to give me an elite education if I went into something as silly as ministry. I was afraid that they'd always feel like they failed, like I'd failed them, unless I did something respectable, like practice law. Surely God calls people to serve the world as attorneys. God loves justice, so that's a noble call. But it wasn't my call. So, sensing that God might be calling me into ministry, I resolved to become a lawyer who teaches Sunday school on weekends and tithes a lot. That's a good ministry. But then I learned about lawyers who did pro bono work for churches and charities, and I promised God that I'd do some of that on the side. What I couldn't do was let go of my need to be rich and respected. And that demand was keeping me trapped. So despite my sincere desire to follow Jesus, I couldn't take up Jesus' invitation. And in that way, I suspect I was a lot like the man in the first story that we read. We know that from Matthew's account that he's a, a teacher of the law. And in that society, being a religious lawyer was a pretty good business. They were highly educated, highly admired, and highly paid. They could afford nice homes and fine wine and fancy food. It was what every parent dreamed their children to achieve. Jesus is delighted that this man wants to follow him. So he doesn't reject him. He simply clarifies what it will cost him. Foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. He's asking the religious teacher, are you willing to follow me even if it costs you the comfort and the privileges you're used to? Are you willing to trust me to lead you to full life even if it costs your fancy life? For too long, the answer for me was no. I was resisting Jesus' call to full life because I couldn't let go of my fantasy life. Is there something you can't let go of? Is there a reason you're missing out on the full life that Jesus wants to give you because there's something you can't let go of? Maybe you need to get into a certain college or career or get your kid into that college. Maybe you want to be married, make partner, make your first million, or buy a second home. Maybe you don't need to be rich. You just want to be financially independent, so you don't need to rely on anybody, even God, to meet your needs. Maybe you want to be seen in a certain way, so that people respect you, admire you, envy you. So you need to look a certain way, own certain things, or, or raise kids that impress everybody. Are you trapped? A lot of us are. We claim to follow Jesus, 
but we're not actually following him anywhere. Unlike the stories we've been reading in Luke, we're not being spiritually transformed into fine wine. We're, we're not seeing our prayers answered, our deepest wounds healed, our deepest needs met. We're stuck in the same place we've been for a long time. Like a monkey with his hand in the coconut or a greyhound racing down the track, we keep reaching for something that seems so appealing. But despite all of our pulling and straining, we're never actually able to get the satisfaction we're looking for. So Jesus asks earlier in the same chapter, what good is it if we gain the whole world and yet lose our true selves? If we have a fancy life, even a fantasy life, but not a full life, is there something you're holding on to too tightly? Is there a dream, demand, or desire that has you stuck? If so, today Jesus is saying, let go. Trust me. I've got something better for you. But you'll never get it if you don't let go first. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. He's saying, if you want something truly sweet and satisfying, let go of the fruit that's keeping you stuck. I know you think you're almost there. You've almost got it, but it's a trap. And you'll miss out on the full life I could give you if you refuse to release the life you thought you wanted. Just let go. I know how to get you fruit that's real and rich, but you have to let go first and follow me to what truly satisfies. Maybe there's a reason it was a piece of fruit Adam and Eve weren't allowed to have in the Garden of Eden. God had filled the garden with every type of fruit tree, more than they could eat. But the one the serpent offered appeared to be sweeter than all the others. They had to have that one, thinking it would complete their lives. But it cost them their lives instead. She saw that the tree was beautiful and that its fruit looked delicious. So she took some of that fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and suddenly they felt shame at their nakedness. In our determination to grab the life that Jesus isn't giving us because we believe it might be better than the one God wants for us, we don't find more life. We find less. So what did that religious lawyer do? We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. Because the far more important question he's asking is, what will you do? Will you stay stuck? Or will you let go and trust Jesus to lead you to a fuller life than you could ever achieve on your own? We'll come back to that. Because next Jesus encounters another guy who's ready to follow as soon as his father's funeral is over. Or at least that's what I used to think it meant. Because in our culture, it's common for there to be a long gap between someone's death and their funeral. You know, at least a few days and often a few weeks or even more. But in that culture, bodies were buried immediately. That always, that same day. 
So there's no way this guy's father had died, but they just needed to finish the funeral. In fact, there's no reason to think his father's even sick because the only other time we see this idiom is outside the Bible where it refers to someone whose father may not die for decades. So what this guy's saying to Jesus is that I want to follow you. <laughs> really, I, I do. I, I just can't do it yet, but, but I'll do it I, in the future, right? I, someday, I'm, after my father dies, may, maybe a decade or two, but definitely someday. Many of us do the same thing, but it sounds different. Oh, believe me, Jesus, I, I'm definitely going to follow you just as soon as I graduate. I pay off my loans, get a job, I, get, get that promotion. Find a spouse, buy a house, start a family, get my kids out of the house, retire, just get a little more energy. Seriously, Jesus, you can count on me someday. I'm not, not today, but, but someday for sure, because Jesus, you're more important to me than anything. How many of us have said something like that? Jesus, I'll start serving you when I, I feel more spiritually mature, when I know the Bible better. When I've conquered that sin, when I've sorted myself out, definitely, Jesus, I'll, I'll start tithing and being generous just as soon as I get out of debt. I'll buy a car, pull together a down payment, get my kids through college, pay off my mortgage, maximize my 401k. I mean, seriously, Jesus, you can count on me someday, not today, but, but someday for sure, because Jesus, you're more important to me than anything. That's what this guy was saying. It's what a lot of us say. Because we're stuck in an elephant trap, which is to say we're not actually trapped. We just think we are. We're convinced that we don't have a choice. I mean, I, I need to graduate, of course. I, I, I need to get out of debt. I, I, I need to have my kids in sports leagues on Sunday. I mean, you get that, Jesus. But believe me, one of these days, a lot of us are just about to follow Jesus for our entire lives. When I was in college, a campus fellowship speaker told us to start tithing, which seemed absurd because I was hardly making any money at my summer job and it had to last the entire school year. And besides, 10% of what I earned would be trivial. But he explained it's not about the amount. It's about learning to trust God more than money which is to say, it's about freedom. He said that if we don't start tithing when the amounts are small, we'll never do it when the amounts are large because our appetites will grow right alongside our incomes. So we'll always believe that we don't have quite enough. We'll always feel pressure and stress because it's up to us to provide for all our needs instead of trusting God. And just like that, we're trapped. I can't follow Jesus now because I'm tied down by all the, these responsibilities and the expectations I learned from my parents. We may have busy lives or even comfortable lives, but end up missing out on the full life Jesus is inviting us into. So Jesus replies, you don't have to stay stuck there just because everybody else is. You don't have to chase the American dream or, or keep up with the Joneses. Let the dead bury their own dead. But you, go proclaim the kingdom of God. Don't follow the dead people. Follow me to full life, living God's way. And once you've tasted it, 
Go back and invite everyone else into full life too. We can't tell others until we've tasted it ourselves. So what story do you tell yourself that keeps you trapped? That keeps you from following Jesus into full life? Do you believe that God can't be trusted? Do you fear that he doesn't really know what's best for you? Do you believe that he doesn't have the power to provide full life the way that money or success or other people can? Both the monkey and the elephant know that they're stuck, but they don't know why. They can't see that they've been trapped by little more than a lie. Finally, we meet the third guy who replies to Jesus, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Here we go again, I'm just like the second guy. But no, this guy's the opposite. But I didn't see that until I recognized the reference to a famous moment in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings 19, when the prophet Elijah called Elisha to take his place by symbolically wrapping his cloak around Elisha's shoulders while Elisha was at work tending his fields, we read, Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah, and said to him, first, let me go kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I'll go with you. So Elisha returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. He passed around that meat to the townspeople, and they all ate. And then he went with Elijah as his assistant. Elisha heard the invitation from God, and without hesitation, he said goodbye to his parents without waiting decades for them to die. He burned up the tools he'd relied on to make money, and he trusted God to guide him and provide for him. And God used him in ways that were not just meaningful, they were miraculous. The third guy we read about today did that same thing. He gave up everything without hesitating because he knew who Jesus was. He had seen what Jesus could do, and he trusted that if he followed Jesus, Jesus would keep his promises and lead him to full life. So the question today is, which of these three people are you? Is there something holding you back from following Jesus? Or put another way, is there something you're holding on to too tightly? Are you stuck? Today is the first Sunday in Lent. For those of you who are new to it, Lent is the 40-day period leading up to Easter in which Christians prepare to take hold of new life with the resurrected Christ by confessing what they need to let go of, repenting, and then releasing those things so that they can follow Jesus more fully. If we want to experience the freedom that Easter can bring, first we need to confess what we need to let go of. What desire, what dream, expectation, ambition, possession, position, privilege, person, are you holding on to so tightly that, like the monkey, you're held back from following Jesus? Friend, if your highest goal is to get into college, or get your kids into college, then you may be a great student or a great parent. 
but you're probably not a disciple. If your highest goal is to follow Jesus, he may call you to go to college or into a lucrative career, into marriage or parenting. But if we make those things conditions for following Christ, we'll never actually follow him at all. Usually, we think of sin as doing or desiring bad things. But usually, sin is doing or desiring good things out of order. An easy example. When we choose comfort over truth, it's a sin. There's nothing wrong with comfort. But when we choose it over truth, we've gotten a good thing out of order. When we choose fleeting pleasure over compassion, when we choose ease over justice, when we choose money over integrity, when we choose climaxing over connecting, when we choose control over kindness, when we choose our way over God's way, we sin. When I choose my appearance or reputation over my character, or my children's academic achievement over their spiritual health, or financial stability over faithful stewardship, we sin. Is there something you've been holding on to too tightly that may be preventing you from following Jesus into fuller life? The first step is to confess that. Acknowledge that reality in conversation with God. We'll give you a chance to do that in just a few minutes. The second step to freedom is to repent, which means, literally, to rethink, to change your mind. Because behind every sin is a lie. The same lie the serpent told Adam and Eve. God can't be trusted to give you the best life. St. Ignatius wrote, that sin is the unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. God will not ask you to give something up because he doesn't want what's good for you, but because he wants what's better for you. God's not telling you to stop sinning because he doesn't like it when people have fun, but because he doesn't like it when they settle for so much less than he wants to give us. So Jesus insisted, don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? Those things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. And he'll give you everything you need. Do you know that? Do you believe it? Have you lived it? I didn't believe it. My thoughts were dominated by my desire for affluence and my parents' approval. It's a longer story that I'd like to share another time, but after resisting and delaying, staying stuck for too long, finally the Holy Spirit persuaded me to risk trusting him and following his call. I went into full-time ministry, and it was just as bad as I'd feared. Michelle and I lived in literal poverty for several years, and I knew how disappointed my parents were. That's exactly what I expected would happen 
It's what I feared. It's what had been holding me back. But what I hadn't expected is that the same God who was working in my life was also working in my parents. Not because of me and probably despite me. Both my parents had a resurgence of faith and became two of my biggest fans. Almost every time I preach, my dad sends me a note explaining why that sermon was so meaningful to him. And every time that note is precious to me. It's about more than a compliment. It's a reminder that God can bless us in ways we never expected. Each time Michelle and I have been challenged to adopt another child, I've worried about money. How are we possibly going to pay for one more? And yet, in ways that I never expected, God's provided far more than anyone really needs. I thought I was sacrificing so much to follow Jesus. But God's given us so much more than anything we gave up for him. It cost us everything. And it cost us nothing at all. Because Jesus gives us everything we need. Like the elephant, a lot of us are held back by lies we've believed for so long. We assume they must be true. Repent. Rethink. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you see the reality about who God is and how much he loves you. But it's not enough to know these things. Like Elisha, we need to burn those lies and the things that we've relied on instead of God. We need to take practical steps to break free from whatever's holding us back from following Jesus. It's traditional for Christians to fast during Lent. It used to be meat, but nowadays a lot of American Christians will fast from chocolate or ice cream. And for a nation that's been trained to indulge every desire, maybe that's a good start. Practicing saying no to those treats so that you can build up your strength to say no to more substantial temptations. Others of you might practice fasting from shopping or checking your bank balance or investing, numbing yourself with alcohol, talking about yourself, criticizing anyone else, staying caught up in the 24-hour news cycle, doom scrolling on the internet, or using social media at all. The point of fasting isn't to make us suffer. It's to set us free from whatever's holding us back from following Jesus. Perhaps you could ask the Holy Spirit and talk with a pastor or a close Christian friend about what's holding you back and discern together what lie lies behind that and what kind of fast might point you towards freedom. Because the goal of Lent is not to fulfill your fast. The goal of Lent is to be set free to follow Jesus into new life and full life all year long.